Companies buoying China's oppression? Beware. A 12-year-old lawsuit against tech firm Cisco now revived by a California court. China's exports hitting a record decline as its economy spirals. Will the crisis reach the U.S.? Tens of thousands evacuated and bridge caught overflowing with water. Severe flooding are soaking regions across China. And an unusual U.S.-China meeting at the Pentagon. Is Beijing finally ready to address the silence between two of the world's strongest militaries? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Don Ma, in for Tiffany today. An American tech company allegedly with a helping hand in Chinese oppression. Last week, the Ninth Circuit Court in California overturned a nine-year-old lawsuit dismissal. The case accuses Cisco Systems of helping the Chinese Communist Party persecute a religious group by making it easier for Beijing to arrest, detain, and torture adherents with its technology. In the midst of a heated U.S.-China tech war, are large companies complicit in Chinese oppression? A look at that question and the story of a Cisco shareholder's fight for human rights 20 years ago. Let's dive in. I'm so glad that uh, this... That was a longtime human rights activist Ann Lau's response to the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals' recent decision to revive a nearly decade-old case. The case she's referring to is the 2011 lawsuit against Cisco, alleging the company helped the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP's, violent persecution of Falun Gong. Here's what Terry Marsh, the chief attorney in the Cisco case, had to say. They understood ideological conversion through torture, which is, what can I say, um, a pretty horrific crime. Lau says she's been calling attention to Western corporations assisting the regime's human rights violations since 2002, when she submitted a resolution. Back in year 2000, China started to pick people up uh, when they went on the Internet to talk. And it seems that it was really quickly that when they get into the Internet cafe, they type up something, and they went, when they get out, it's picked up by the government uh, almost immediately. Through her Internet business, Lau learned about Cisco's alleged involvement in supplying the CCP Internet equipment used to monitor its hundreds of millions of netizens. To bring it to the company and the public's attention, she brought shares of Cisco and waited a year before she could qualify to submit resolutions to the SEC as a shareholder. Her resolution requests Cisco to prepare an annual stockholder report describing its products provided to any government entity that could allow online monitoring or recording. Fast forward 21 years, Lau says she's pleased with the rising public awareness. I'm hoping that this will establish a precedent that corporations is responsible if they are in any way proven in persecuting people around the world. Falun Gong is a faith group that's been heavily persecuted in China since 1999. In the 2011 lawsuit against Cisco, the plaintiffs accused the CCP of using a surveillance platform known as Golden Shield to monitor and detain Falun Gong adherents. Cisco, they said, had designed, crafted, and given critical assistance to implement and fine-tune the Golden Shield project at a time when the regime was incapable of developing one on its own. 
They designed the entire apparatus in San Jose. And the design is the brain of the apparatus. They had a special Cisco team go to China with boots on the ground to help implement it, allegedly, as we allege. Cisco's then-Vice President acknowledged that, quote, the Cisco internal presentation included a Chinese government official statement regarding the combat of hostile elements, including religious organizations. For one Western corporation to justify their action generally by say, well, I'm just, you know, following the laws of the land that I'm doing business in, this argument is no longer valid. NTD reached out to Cisco for comment, but didn't hear back by broadcast deadline. The San Jose District Court had dismissed the case back in 2014, saying Falun Gong victims failed to prove that Cisco knew its product would enable oppression. The plaintiffs are 13 Chinese nationals and a U.S. citizen, Charles Lee. Lee said he was arrested in 2003 for practicing Falun Gong in China. He said he was beaten, deprived of sleep and food, and handcuffed in painful positions during his three-year prison sentence. In the two-to-one opinion reinstating the suit, U.S. Circuit Judge Marsha Birdzon wrote, quote, Cisco provided essential technical assistance with awareness that torture, arbitrary detention, disappearance, and extrajudicial killing were likely taken place, adding that Cisco's actions, many of which took place on American soil, constitute aiding and abetting the Chinese regime's abuses. Are U.S. companies complicit in Communist China's human rights abuses? Decades ago, Washington established trade ties with the Communist nation, hoping that democracy would reach its shores through free trade. But lawmakers are now flagging concerns. NTD's Sam Wong was on Capitol Hill. The Congressional Executive Commission on China is looking into U.S. businesses' complicity in China's human rights abuse. How can the biggest dictatorship in the world, China, can control a 100% American-made company and fire a U.S. citizen. The man speaking is Annis Cantor Freedom, a former NBA player blacklisted for his activism against China's persecution of Tibetans and Uyghurs. He said that he was criticized by the league for wearing shoes with messages condemning Beijing's human rights abuse. Freedom told NTD that there's profits involved in the NBA's tie with China. And when you talk about China, it is hit in their pocket. Because when I talk about it, the China cancel every Boston Celtics game on uh, television. And that cost NBA so much money. Representative Chris Smith, chairman of the panel, said that the NBA will be invited to testify in front of Congress. I spoke with Smith after the hearing, and he told me that the Basketball League isn't the only corporation complicit in China's malpractice. Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, and Cisco have been part of the problem for decades. The worst of the worst seems to be far too many of our big corporations who kowtow to Xi Jinping on a daily basis. They do not enforce or respect worker rights at all. Lawmakers are also questioning Nike and Adidas for allegedly importing products made by forced labor in China. Similarly, U.S. telecom giant Cisco recently came under fire for helping the CCP to monitor Falun Gong practitioners who are undergoing brutal persecution in China for their spiritual practice. The case was first brought up back in 2011, but an appeals court just last week ruled that the lawsuit may proceed. In the face of an ever more assertive China, lawmakers are demanding more auditing transparency while urging U.S. corporations to prioritize human rights over profits. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Sam Wong, NTD News. Is the world's factory losing its edge? Beijing released trade data for June on Thursday, and export numbers don't look promising. 
The figure highlights a record three-year low for made-in-China goods exports. That covers products ranging from furniture to clothes, footwear, travel goods, and even handbags, plus tech products and resources like minerals. Officials blame geopolitical risks and slowing global investment for China's export decline. The direct impact of weakening foreign demand on China's foreign trade is still ongoing. As inflation and interest rates rise, overseas economies are buying fewer products from Chinese factories. Now, China's exports are falling at their fastest pace since the COVID-19 pandemic began. When Beijing lifted virus lockdowns last December, many investors expected China's economy to rebound. But it hasn't worked out that way. Uh, the supply chain disruption during the pandemic is a key factor. With the sluggish export figures, China's leaders have been left wondering whether the faltering economy can still be revived with help from American money. What's more, China's June imports decline also came back more severe than expected. And the country's high unemployment rate has led to waning local demand. From last June to this April, I didn't get one single job offer. Calls for stimulus measures are higher than ever. China's new premier, Li Qiang, has talked up possible policy measures to boost demand. But few concrete measures have been announced so far. Here's what Macroland's chief strategist, Brian McCarthy, had to say on what's happening. I would think Xi Jinping at some point would want to try to do something to turn that around. They've tried uh, on the margin with very, very little success. A former U.S. finance official has said China may no longer be the world's growth driver. But will China's crisis affect the U.S.? China doesn't really purchase much of anything. It doesn't really hurt the West. I don't think the West is going to be under any pressure to do anything to help China out of this pickle. Beijing has set a GDP growth target of around 5 percent for this year. That's after it fell far short of last year's goal. A rare U.S.-China meeting kicking off at the Pentagon Thursday. China's ambassador to the U.S. met with Eli Ratner, an assistant secretary of defense and Washington's top defense official for Asia. According to the Pentagon, the two officials talked defense plus a range of international and regional security issues. A main point of contention, Beijing's refusal of open military communication in recent months. While on the Chinese side, Ambassador Xie Feng requested that Washington take action to remove obstacles, manage differences, and handle Taiwan and other sensitive issues cautiously. Following the 90-minute meeting, experts pointed out it's unusual for the Chinese ambassador to talk directly with senior U.S. officials, hinting that Beijing could be trying to respond to U.S. objections over the lack of defense talks. Though for now, no new lines of communication appear to have opened between the two superpowers. Anna Kwok, a Hong Kong activist based in Washington, has vowed to keep fighting for democracy. But her safety is threatened by a nearly $130,000 Hong Kong police bounty for her arrest. Now her plea for political asylum in the U.S. is more urgent than ever. Here's her story. The Hong Kong government has issued an arrest warrant for me because of the advocacy work I've been doing in the, in the U.S. Anna Kwok is a Washington-based Hong Kong activist who isn't scared to speak out on human rights violations in China. They have been trying to say that Hong Kong is prosperous, Hong Kong is well-developed, and Hong Kong respects human rights. And we are living examples of that not being true. 
Last week, Hong Kong police sought to ramp up pressure on Quok and seven other overseas-based activists, issuing arrest warrants for alleged national security violations and offering bounties of nearly 130,000 US dollars for each arrest. Quok says the warrants confirmed what she had long suspected, that returning home would be impossible since it would lead to almost certain arrest. But that isn't going to slow her down. I think realistically speaking, it just means that they're, they are, you know, giving me more and more reason to fight on. One year after replying, Quok's bid for political asylum in the United States remains in limbo. Right now, I'm under the protection of the DED status, which is deferred and forced departure. What it means is just that the U.S. government would not, you know, force you out of the country. With uh, actual statuses that grants me asylum here, I would be more flexible about what I do, what I say, and also feel much more secured about my standing here in the U.S. Ask what keeps her going. In the face of constant uncertainty, Quok says she wants to fight for the city she grew up in. Really, to me, it's only about love, love for my city, the love for the place I grew up in, and the love for the people in Hong Kong as well. Once considered a bastion of freedoms on China's doorstep, Hong Kong enjoyed a separate and independent judicial system from China when it returned from British to Chinese rule in 1997. Since the 2020 imposition of the national security law, most of the democratic opposition has been jailed or exiled. Hong Kong authorities say the security law has brought stability and that the eight, quote, absconders, including Quoke, continue to endanger national security. More catastrophic effects of China's inhumane one-child policy now coming to light. A Chinese court has denied a divorce request by a mother of six. All of her children, baby girls, the woman referred to as Xiong, was accused of shrinking her maternal duties and, quote, not being a good mother. She explained that her husband and his family placed great importance on having a son to continue the family line, a strong social custom in China because of the one-child policy. While daughters will one day marry into other families, sons will support their parents as they age. Xiong said she came to realize she was merely viewed as a child-bearing vessel. The mother of six said she couldn't bear more pregnancies, so she fled back to her parents' home in 2019. But the Hunan province judge sided against the mother's divorce, claiming that Xiong couldn't prove her marriage had broken down. As the Chinese regime faces down an impeding population crisis, some fear Beijing may be wielding its court system to combat plummeting birth rates. A new battleground for the U.S.-China power struggle, the ocean floor. There, crisscrossing cable speed up the world's data transfers. A Reuters feature story tracks Washington's new effort to push China out of the subsea cable market. Here's the latest. According to Reuters, U.S. cable layer CS Dependable was spotted last Friday near Diego Garcia, an island in the central Indian Ocean that hosts a U.S. naval base. Sources revealed that the ship was part of an operation to lay underwater fiber optic cables leading to the military base. The move is expected to bolster U.S. military readiness in the Indo-Pacific, where China's naval influence has been expanding over the past decade. CS Dependable is owned by New Jersey-based Subcom, a key player in the U.S.-China tech war. The company is one of the world's top four submarine cable contractors. 
The other three are Japan's NEC Corporation, France's Alcatel Submarine Networks, and China's HMN Tech, a subsidiary of sanctioned Chinese tech giant Huawei. The U.S. government has been tough on freezing China's cable market. That's in light of the regime's record of spying activities. Three years ago, Washington helped Subcom beat China's HMN to win a $600 million cable project known as Simi We 6, snaking through Southeast Asia to Western Europe. The project will join more than a dozen countries along the way. In 2020, the DOJ halted a cable route that Google, Meta, and Amazon were planning to build. If constructed, it would link the U.S. directly to Hong Kong, a city now in Beijing's grip. Underseas cables carry 99% of transcontinental internet traffic, but the network is prone to sabotage and espionage. In February, Chinese fishing boats cut the cables between Taiwan and the Matsu Islands off the coast of China. More than 10,000 residents were left without internet for almost two months. Such internet outages can be devastating, especially in times of war. Notably, when Russia launched its attack on Ukraine, internet infrastructure was made a prime target. Another big story to look out for, has President Biden been tough enough on China? That question brought up for debate among lawmakers after critics claimed Biden is weak on China. What does the White House have to say? That report and more coming up tomorrow on China In Focus. But today, here's what's coming up. Has the West already lost control of its most vital sea route? Russia and China have made major advancements in the Suez region at what some call the expense of the U.S. and European powers. What makes the area so important? And what's the danger if China and Russia are more present there? We sat down with Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, for details. More on that after the break here on China In Focus. And welcome back. The Red Sea is a prime spot for scuba diving, but it's not just that. The region also hosts critical lines of communication under its waves. But now, U.S. influence there is at its lowest level in more than a century, even during the Cold War. On top of that, China has made major inroads in the Suez region. What happened to the U.S. presence there, and what should Washington do going forward? We speak to Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association, for more. Here with me is Greg Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association. So in an Epoch Times article, you said Russia and China have made major advancements in, in their presence in the Suez re- region at the expense of the West and European powers. Why is this area so important? Well, the Red Sea-Suez Canal link uh, provides the east-west artery for much European and North American trade with Asia and the India in the Indo-Pacific and, and from the Indo-Pacific, of course, to Europe and North America. Uh, it's it was the Suez Canal was conceived as a shortcut uh, in the global maritime uh, supply chain uh, and has been extremely effective. It's one of the most vital choke points or, or, or transit points for, for global trade. So it's critical. Uh, the U.S and uh, the West have lost huge influence there in the past couple of years uh, because they have literally alienated a lot of their former 
supporters in the region. What's the danger here if China and Russia are more present in the region and have more influence? For example, uh, Beijing's control or relative control over the Panama Canal. In times of crisis, it can block those, uh, those strategic arteries. And we've seen blockages in the Red Sea sewers on a number of occasions, not only in the Suez Canal, Red Sea, Panama Canal, in the ASEAN waterways through Indonesia, through the South China Sea and the like. If you can control these choke points, you have control of global trade. Maritime powers know that if they control the seas, they control the globe. And to control the seas, you have to, by default, control those vital seaways, whether it's uh, the waterways near Gibraltar, accessing from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean, or the Bosphorus going down from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean, which is controlled by Turkey. All of these are enormous strategic levers, and therefore, if you control them, enormous sources of power. Now, a lot of trade goes through this area. What are we talking about here? Everyday life essentials, key minerals, uh, materials? What are we talking about here? All of the above, including uh, oil and uh, oil and gas, uh, but yes, but everyday uh, commodities, including you know everything from consumer goods to vehicles to heavy machinery uh, to uh, basic raw materials to uh, oil and gas. Uh, literally, this is uh, a giant lifeline. Once an order is placed, if the Suez Canal is interrupted, all of a sudden. You go from a you know one or two week delivery time to two or three month delivery time, and the costs go up because you've got goods uh, having to be at sea, going from say Western Europe down through the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean and and up into Japan. So it could be two or three months, and every day that high capital cost goods are at sea, that's capital which is tied up. So. The cost, therefore, of delivering those goods goes up through the roof, uh, and we start to see an impact on on cost of living. Uh, it, it, it so it affects literally the survival of governments, and of course our ability to uh, live at a reasonable uh, cost of living. So you're saying the West is losing influence in this area. I mean, how how did we get here? The United States, particularly since the end of the Trump administration, has taken approaches to the region which have been ideological and antagonistic to their former allies. Uh, you know, we saw, for example, uh, we, well, even in 1978 79, where the collapse of the Iranian government was brought about because of President Jimmy Carter literally undermining all the work which. Uh, previous administration, particularly President Nixon, had done to make sure that Iran was an ally of the United States and Saudi Arabia was an ally of the United States. The uh, recent uh, administrations, whether it's Jimmy Carter or whether it was Obama and Biden administrations, have been pointedly annoying its former allies in the region. People's Republic of China, on the other hand, has been all about getting in getting strategic positioning, getting economic advantage where it could, and has not in any way attempted to criticize these governments for their domestic practices. And this has stood Beijing in very good stead. Unfortunately, the, Beijing has alienated the, a lot of the societies to a degree as well by providing poor quality goods, by providing, uh, if you like, um, 
more or less uh, economic blackmail by getting countries into debt dependency and the like. But on the whole, the People's Republic of China has done a better job of diplomacy in the past uh, couple of years in that region than has the United States. How does the West regain presence in this region? The United States has to begin a much less ideological approach to its diplomacy in the region. Uh, it's, it's just, again, given in, for example, to blackmail from Turkey, uh, because Turkey used its veto of allowing Sweden into NATO to extract enormous promises from the United States uh, in a move which was basically naive. And, and the US doesn't know how to play hardball. Uh, so and the, the, we've got a variety of issues there which get back to the, the competency, if you like, uh, within the White House and the State Department in terms of strategic diplomacy. In fact, it, it was so incompetent that it made it appear as though the US, the great power of the world, was having to kowtow to Beijing. It had to go to Beijing to pay homage and tribute to uh, uh, Emperor Xi Jinping. And any fundamental approach to diplomacy uh, historically would show that you don't give credence and credibility and strength to the prestige of your opponent when you are trying to bring him into line. The prestige of the United States is collapsing before our very eyes, uh, and, and it could be resolved uh, with a much more clear and insightful and far-looking, far far-forward-looking far approach to governance, uh, which uh, may or may not come with the 2024 elections. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your insight today. My pleasure. Good to be with you. And that's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Don Ma. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.